We're continuing our series this morning in a fellowship of sufferings. Uh, we've been talking about this for the past few, few weeks here at Flourishing Grace. And what we've realized kind of even as we've begun to kind of dip our toes into this is this, this, is, this is heavy. And it's actually a very hard topic to unpack in a, in a short period of time. And we, we really only have this week and next week left. And then we're, we're going to move on. Um, and so I just want to encourage you, if you are maybe brand new or maybe you, you are a regular here at Flourishing Grace, but you've been gone the past couple weeks, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to the past two, two weeks. If somewhere along the way today you say, man, I, I'm confused a little bit, you need to go back and listen because we don't have time this morning to go back and, and unpack everything that we've talked about. This idea of a fellowship of sufferings, real quick, I'll, I'll kind of a little bit unpack it. Uh, it. We see this throughout, throughout the New Testament. We see it uh, in the teachings of Paul. We see it in the teachings of Peter. We see it in the teachings of James. We see it in the life of Paul. Paul lives this out. He models it. He displays it for others. This idea that through our suffering, in, in my suffering, whatever that may look like, whatever that may be, I can engage in a deeper, more intimate, more meaningful relationship with Jesus. And I can come out on the other side when that suffering ends, and it will end one way or the other. When that suffering ends, because I have entered into it with Christ, the Spirit has done a work in my life. And I am now, as, as a result, I am more Christ-like. I'm a better person. I'm an, I'm, I've, I've gained spiritually, as a result, on the other side of this. For most of us, our life of suffering, when we encounter suffering in life, then we do not gain from it. We just, it's simply an act of loss. We, we enter into, we're living life, we enter into suffering, and we just run away from it. We don't engage it. We don't, we don't enter into it with Christ. We just, we just run away as fast as we can. Uh, and so this idea from Scripture is rather than running away from all of our suffering, we actually turn towards it with Christ. And in our suffering, we identify with Christ in His sufferings. And the Spirit of Christ is a work in us there. This is what we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. All of this was kind of the catalyst for this was a book called The J-Curve by a guy named Paul Miller. Paul Miller wrote the book, The J-Curve. Some of our staff read it last summer. We're like, man, we want to talk to our people about this. And, and as we were preparing for this, realizing, man, we can't even, we're not going to scratch the surface of this idea. It's just too much. It's too complex. Uh, so we bought a bunch of books, uh, bought a bunch of book copies of The J-Curve. They're out there in the lobby. You can grab one today. Uh, they're $15, which is $8 cheaper than Amazon, Okay. That's pretty good. Uh, you can grab one of those on your way out. If you are in a path group, uh, in a discipleship formation group here at Flourishing Grace, you're in a path group, uh, and your path group is going to go through this book together, and we would encourage that. We would love to see that. And so that Flourishing Grace will take another $5. We'll eat $5 of that for you. So it's only 10 bucks a person if you're going to go through it in, in your path group. We would love to see. If you say, man, I want to take a deeper dive into this, uh, uh, we would love to see you do that. We've said all along that, that suffering is a fundamental necessity to intimacy with Jesus. You, you cannot, you cannot truly know Christ without knowing suffering. Because he is our suffering Savior. He's the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. He's the one who has suffered more than anyone else has ever suffered. And so in order for us to actually attain intimacy with Jesus, we must identify with him in his sufferings. We must join with him in a fellowship, a relationship of sufferings. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. 
is to right now kind of to understand this is my suffering is not something to be to be run from to be avoided to be numbed when i have a, a rough day or a season where there's sorrow in my life or there's pain in my life it's not something that i just need i don't need to go home and binge netflix and sports center or drink alcohol or or whatever it is to just kind of numb the pain or if you're type a just to deal with it just plow through it and move on come out on the other side and just be all right it's over let's let's move on with life Suffering is this unbelievable thing that Jesus uses in our lives to unite us with him in a death like his, dying to ourself, and, friends, listen, a resurrection like his, experiencing the power of his resurrection, being raised to new life in Christ. We see this picture most clearly in Philippians 3. And you've seen this chart. I'm going to throw up here on the screen. This is a chart from the book, The J-Curve, kind of charting Philippians 3. All right, we're living our life, and then we begin to go down into suffering. This is going to happen whether you follow this or not, right? You're going to suffer. There's things in your life that are going to happen. But that little arrow at the bottom is this moment where we engage suffering in a different way. We turn this over to Christ and say, not my will, but yours be done. We've identified our suffering. We release our grasp on it, right? And so Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, that I may share in his sufferings. I say, okay, I want to become more like Jesus, becoming like him in his death, and then coming out on the other side, experiencing the power of his resurrection. So we're living our life, but then we enter into this relationship with Christ, experiencing his death, but then we come out on the other side with this greater sense of flourishing. And this is what we've talked about over the past two Sundays. And so if you're like, man, I don't understand that, it's because you weren't here. I love you, but you weren't here. All right, so go online and listen, flourishinggrace.org slash listen. Uh, and you can kind of get a, a deeper dive into that. But we have to kind of move on uh, this morning. Uh, we, said, we said over last week that there's kind of these three doors, three ways in which we can enter into a fellowship of sufferings. Okay, last week we talked about uh, the door of affliction, or what Paul Miller calls simply the, the, the suffering J-curve. Right? This is when uh, suffering is coming into my life okay, a- as a result of someone else. This is not my choice. This is not something that I want. This is not something that I've sought. This is not something that I'm looking for. Someone is doing something. Somebody else's sin is leading me into suffering. Or, or just the natural fallenness of the world, right? The brokenness of the world. So it could be uh, cancer, it could be a tsunami, right? E- either way, I- I'm suffering, and it's not because of anything I've done, okay? This is not my fault, it's just coming at me, it's f- happening to me, right? And, and we said, man, this is one of the ways that we enter into the J-curve. We talked about that last Sunday. This morning, I want to move on and kind of talk about the second way that we enter into a fellowship of sufferings. We enter into the J-curve. And that is through love, okay? This is what Paul Miller calls the love J-curve. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, this is a very, very fundamental idea for the Christian, okay? This idea that um, in love, the love J-curve, we are, we are this, in this way, we are willingly, we are willingly binding ourselves to someone else who is suffering, okay? So this isn't happening to us. Someone else is suffering, and we see them in their suffering, and we bind ourselves to them. We enter into suffering for the sake of someone else. We engage, right, in a fellowship of Christ's sufferings with Christ for the sake of someone else, in love for someone else. We see someone else suffering, 
our heart is moved by their suffering, and we choose to enter into that. Now this, this is what we think about. This is a very common thing. If, even if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, and I know not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus, but when you think about Christian suffering, this is the suffering we think of. When we think of somebody like Mother Teresa, right, this is the suffering we think of. All of the great Christian leaders of all time, okay, this is what we think of. People who are willing to kind of release their grasp on the things of this world, to willingly bind themselves to someone else's brokenness, someone else's suffering, and enter into that. It's what we think of when we think of Jesus as calling his disciples to take up their cross and deny themselves, to make the choice of denying themselves and willingly enter into suffering on a daily basis to follow after him. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Again and again and again, Jesus is calling his followers, calling his disciples. I mean, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. I tell you, I mean, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But most famously, right, the, the golden rule, to do unto others as you have done to yourself. Jesus specifically, he says it this way in Matthew 7. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, whatever it is that you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He goes on in the same, in the same thought. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus says, listen, this is not normal. It's not common. When you look around at, your, at the world around you, you're not going to see this very often. The, the, the gate is wide that leads to destruction. And this way, this way is narrow, it's small, and not very many people are actually going to engage in this. This is an uncommon way of life. To treat others the way that you wish to be treated. If you were the one, if you were homeless, and you had no means to gain access to food or shelter or money, you had no way to get a job, and someone was walking past you on the street, how do you wish they would treat you? For the Christian, we are commanded to treat that person the way we wish we were to be treated. If you were um, sitting at a coffee shop, there's a new coffee shop on, on Main Street here in Bountiful called Split Leaf Coffee. Got to support local, all right? So you're, you're chilling at Split Leaf Coffee, okay? And you are just enjoying that 30 minutes of peace and quiet that you have just to relax. Oh, my goodness. It's so, and you get a phone call. And it's the worst news you've ever received in your life. I don't know what it is. It's terrible. And in that moment, you cannot control yourself. You just begin to break down and you are sobbing in the middle of this public place. It is just pain and sorrow. How do you wish the people around you would respond? As a Christian, we are commanded, we are commanded to respond in that way when we see other people who are in suffering. We're commanded to be a people who move towards suffering, to enter into the love J curve. To bind ourselves to other people's suffering. It's not just for, it's not just for the people that we love, it's for our neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the call of the follower of Jesus. We do this all the time. 
We, enter, we willingly enter into suffering all the time for people that we love. If you are a parent in the room, you enter into suffering for your children every single day, right? Your, your kids, um, just to get your kid out of the house in the morning, right, is to enter into suffering for them, okay? If you're a parent of t- teenagers, you enter into suffering every five minutes, okay? Just to, just to get them through the next five minutes of life is to enter into suffering, okay? Uh, if you are married, you do this for your spouse. If you, have, if you have really close friends, you do this for your friends. This week, my, my wife, last Sunday, she received a phone call from her dad saying, hey, your grandpa is probably not going to make it through the night. Okay? And she loves her grandpa. She's close to her grandma. And she's like, what do I do? Like, we have so much going on in our life. Our schedule is so full. We got carpool in the morning. How am I going to get the kids to school? And Winston's got ski racing and stuff and wrestling practice and a wrestling tournament. How, what are we going to do? Like, well, how, okay. I'm like, babe, stop. I've, I've got this. Go. Just, just go be with your grandpa. Now, before you think, oh my goodness, Josh, Josh is such a great husband, da, 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 da. the truth is, I don't have it, okay? I don't have this at all, all right? Our house is a wreck right now. I've barely made it out of the door in the morning. Like, okay, we might have been late to school a couple of times, all right? Don't tell her, but I don't have it. But it's, it's in love. I willingly enter into suffering, right, for the sake of my wife because I love her, right? We do this all the time for people we love. But the Christian... Christian does this for people that they don't even know. The Christian does this for their neighbor. When Jesus is challenged on this, who is my neighbor? He points to the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, I mean, your neighbor is the person who's unlike you, who's fundamentally against the things that you are for, the person who's completely other than you. The Christian is called to do this, commanded to do this for people all around. Anyone you see in suffering, anyone you see in need, we're called to bind ourselves to that, to willingly enter into that and to find love for that person. The question is, when was the last time your relationship with Jesus, when was the last time the gospel cost you something? And I know that's a low blow. And I'm your pastor. And that's my, I get to do that. It's my job to ask the hard questions. The reality is, is for most of us, the answer is, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And if that's the answer, then you've, we've got to come to this realization that we realize, man, at best, our relationship with Jesus is strained. And at worst, it's non-existent. We're just lying to ourselves. We don't, we don't, if we don't embody the life of Christ, we're not walking through the, through the narrow gate. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're not treating other people the way that we wish that we would be treated. We're not following the basic teachings of Jesus. This is the reality of it for so many of us. And the question, the second question is, why would you? Like, why would you ever do those things? Okay, you could say because Jesus said so. But like, what is the, what's the other motivation? There's got to be something more. There's no way you're actually going to willingly bind yourself to some stranger's suffering. The, the, the way is wide, Jesus says, of the world. Like, I mean, most people are not going to do this. Why would you ever do it? Why would you willingly engage in this? Why would you take the money you've been saving up for your family vacation to Disneyland and use it to pay your neighbors rent that they cannot afford? Why would you take your year-end bonus and use it to build a well in India for people who don't have access to clean water? 
We partner with this organization here at Flourishing Grace called Asha India. We take trips to India every year. To past year, we haven't been able to do it because of COVID. But right now, we have two pastors on the ground in India, and they have this idea that was cooked up by some crazy person here at, at Flourishing Grace. Um, and this idea that what if we bought these auto rickshaws, these like three-wheeled taxis, okay? And during the week, we let widows drive them and use them as taxis to like provide for their family because they don't have a husband that's going to provide for them anymore. And then on Sunday, the pastor can use it to go around all the surrounding villages and pick up the people who want to come to church, right? And they don't have a way to get there because they don't have cars. It's brilliant. An auto rickshaw costs like costs $5,000 brand new off the showroom floor. That's like how much you're going to spend on that Disney vacation. Like you could, you could provide funding and life support for a widow in India and a means for people to get to church. It's amazing. But why would you ever do that? Like why would you do that? Like you kids want to go to Disneyland. That's what you're going to do. When you see the person sobbing in the middle of the coffee shop, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever approach them and talk to them? The truth is, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You put your head down. You're going to go find a seat where you can't make eye contact because that's awkward. They're crying publicly. Don't do, like, stop. Stop crying, please. You're, like, making me feel weird. That's, how you're gonna, that's what your response is going to be. You have two coworkers who are in the middle of an argument at, at work. Why would you ever engage to try and help them navigate it? So I'm just going to close my office door and, like, hide out for a little while. Like, the answer is, you wouldn't do it. We don't do it. Most people wouldn't do it. You just wouldn't do it. Unless. Unless there was a moment where you were the one who was in need. There was a moment when you were the one who didn't have access to living water. And someone extended it to you. There was a moment in your life where you didn't have any way to pay the debt that was hanging over your head, and someone paid it. There was a moment in your life when you were the one who was in absolute danger and didn't know how you were going to get yourself out of it, and somebody laid everything aside in order to enter into that and rescued you from it. Then, then maybe you would say, what if I had to hang on to if they were willing to do that for me, I've got, I mean, I've got to do for them. If it changed my life that much, I know how much, how much this would mean to someone else. Far more than, than a Disney vacation, far more than my comfort, far more than my control. It's going to mean far more to them. Then maybe, just maybe, you'd actually engage in it. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Because we were the ones who didn't have access to life-giving water. We were the ones who needed living water, and it was extended to us. We were the ones who were in danger, and Jesus steps in to rescue us. We were the ones who had the debt over our heads that we could not afford, and Jesus pays the debt. Jesus is the one who was in the very form, and the very nature of God. He is God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does he do? He empties himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. He put on flesh. He says, I have all of this wealth. I have all of this power. I have all of this means. I set it aside. I don't count it as something to be grasped. I leave that there. For you he did this. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the infinitely powerful one becomes a baby, becomes weak and small. He knows what it means to feel pain and sorrow and agony and despair in that moment. And that's not enough. He becomes, he humbles himself even beneath that. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you to rescue you from the danger of the wrath of God. To pay the debt that you could not pay. And to live the life that you could not live. Jesus leaves it all behind. To rescue you. That changes everything for us. Now suddenly, what am I going to cling to in this life? What am I going to hold on to in this life? You see, we're not just called to live out the gospel. We're not just called to, to engage with our, with our neighbor and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the only reason we do is because he did it for us. If you are a Christian, the love Jacob should mark your life. And so again, let me ask you, when was the last time, when was the last time that the gospel cost you anything? The truth is, it should be every day. It should be every day. You see, Jesus is he's embodying the J-curve. Philippians 2 is the J-curve. It's this perfect, it's a it's the perfect kind of prototype, the perfect image, the perfect icon for us to look at and say, that's how I should live my life, is dying and rising. Let me show you. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen, this kind of picture of a this chart real quick of Philippians 2 in, in the J-curve. And I know it's tiny. You in the back, I'm sorry. Um, I feel you. But it's just, it's just Philippians 2, okay? Over the J-curve, right? Though he was in the form of God, that's who he is. He did not count equality with God a thing that could be grasped, so he goes down. But he emptied himself lower by taking the form of a servant, lower. Being born in the likeness of men, lower. Being found in human form, lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, lower. But not just any death, not like some comfortable death, not some dying in your sleep death. Death on a cross, as low as you could possibly go. From the infinite, all-powerful, mighty king of the universe to death on a cross. Therefore, up, God, God has highly exalted him, up, and he's bestowed on him a name, up, a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, up, and on earth, up, and every tongue confess, up, that he is Lord, he's King, to the glory of God the Father, infinite glory has been bestowed upon him. And he has, now re, he, he has now restored the kingdom of God in heaven and earth. And he is king. This is the J-curve. It's dying and rising. And as a Christian, this is what I want you to see this morning. As a Christian, your life is to embody that. To follow Jesus. It's to live as he lived. To die every day as he died, but then to experience the power of the resurrection every day. This is what we're invited into every single day. To begin to identify suffering around us, bind ourselves to it, and experience the power of the res resurrection of Christ as a result. And the question is, wait, what? How do we do that? How do we do that? That's where I want to kind of shift this morning. 
I want to get it really practical for the rest of our time, okay? And I want to kind of walk you through these four steps that Paul Miller lays out in the J-curve, okay? And he, he lays them out by laying Philippians 2 over the top of it, okay? The first step, the first step is um, my right, okay? Now, we've talked about this over the past couple weeks. The first step is identifying suffering, Okay? And the first step of the love J-curve, entering by love, is identifying my right. My right is the thing that I'm clinging to that's holding me back from entering in. Okay? So let me give you the example. All right? So you have a, the end-of-year uh, Christmas or end-of-year bonus that you received, and you know that your, your neighbor is struggling to pay their rent or their mortgage or whatever. They lost their job. And your end-of-the-year bonus could easily cover their rent or their mortgage for a month, but you say... Oh, hold on. Hang on, hang on. I earned this. Like, this was given to me because I worked my butt off this year. It's mine. Now, listen to me. That's true. That's a right. It's my right to keep this. It's been given to me. It's, it's mine. Now, we could, we could talk sermon for another day about how it's been gifted to you by God, right? Every good and perfect gift, right? It, for another day. But it's your right, it's yours been given to you because you worked so hard. This is mine to do what I want to do with it. I I worked hard. I achieved this. My neighbor, on the other hand, he lost his job. I don't know what he did. I don't know. I don't know. But his his boss didn't seem fit to to keep him anymore. He's been fired. That's on him. It's not on me. Listen to me. That's true. I know it sounds harsh, but it's true. It's his problem, not yours. It's your right. If I, if I engage in this, what else is it going to require of me? How far down this road do I have to go? It's true. We begin to identify the things that we're clinging to. The person who's sitting at the coffee shop sobbing, right? You're like, oh, this is my, like, 30 minutes. It's all I've got of peace and quiet today to sit here and enjoy my coffee. This is my time. It's true. It's true, right? Whatever's going on in their life is their problem. It's not my problem. Listen to me. I know it sounds harsh, but it's true. That's, that's your right. It's not your problem. You have two coworkers who are at each other's throats over some issue at work. Okay? Listen, that's their problem. It's not mine. It's my right to go into my office and close my door and then not deal with that. Okay? It's my right. They can't adult. They don't know what it means to act like adults. Listen, when I have conflict, I know how to deal with it and I address it calmly and collectively, like they can't do it, that's that's their problem, not mine. It's true. We must learn to identify the thing that we're clinging to. This is mine. That I don't want, okay? Or I don't want to give this up. I don't want to have that. So we have to identify what is the thing. What is the thing I'm clinging to? And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask, okay, what was Jesus' right? Philippians 2. What was Jesus' right? Being in the very nature of God. That is right. He's God. That he, he has all the right in the world. That's, that's your problem. We've brought sin upon ourselves. We've brought brokenness upon ourselves. He has every right to just sit back and say, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not engaging in with that. You got yourself into that mess. He has every right to sit back and say, man, I'm God. I'm perfect. I'm not engaging in this. Jesus 
had every right to not enter into our suffering. And so what right do we have to cling to these things, knowing that he did not cling to his own glory and power and majesty, but he emptied himself? Which leads us to step two, my choice. My choice. In order to enter into the J-curve, we must go down. We must make the choice. We must make the choice to die. Step two is my choice. Now, the reality is, we've said this again, right? Step one is to identify suffering. Step two is to pray. We talked about this last week. Step two, when, when we are the one that is suffering, step two is to say, Man, not my will but yours be done. I, I, I don't want this, but if this is what you have for me, I will willingly enter into the suffering. Step two of the love J-curve is in the same. My choice can only come through prayer. I will never choose to give my year-end bonus to my neighbor. Why? Because I'm a selfish human being. I will never choose to go up to some stranger in a coffee shop who is sobbing. I'm, I'm an introvert, and it's awkward, and I don't want to deal with it, okay? I don't know them. It's just weird, okay? Anybody else, or am I the only one? Okay, it's we okay. Thank you. A couple of you are like, yeah, okay, that's, that's strange. I'm not doing that. Right, you're not gonna do it. You're not gonna do it. And so, step two, my choice. I must pray. Spirit, help me. I know this is what I'm clinging to. I've identified. I see the suffering. I see what I'm clinging to, and I need you to help me release my grasp on this thing because I'm not gonna do it on my own. Show me Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That was his choice. His choice was not to count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so he released it. Help me to see that whatever I'm holding on to is not something to be grasped. My suburban life of comfort is not a thing to be grasped. My peace is not a thing to be grasped. My control is not a thing to be grasped. My money is not a thing to be grasped. Help me release it. Help me make the choice. I love how Bonhoeffer, the great um, German theologian, uh, puts this in, in the cost of discipleship. And the cost of discipleship is really, the whole thing is about the love J-curve. In Bonhoeffer's argument, he doesn't use the language love J-curve. That's Paul Miller's language. It, but it's all about how entering into a fellowship of sufferings is a requirement to discipleship. Can't, you can't be a disciple of Jesus and not enter into a fellowship of sufferings. You, can't, you cannot love your neighbor without suffering. This is what Bonhoeffer is talking about. And he writes this, kind of the most famous quote in the entire book, or one of the most famous quotes, is that he says, is when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Right? But I want to give you the context of that. And the context is all about making this choice. He says this, he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of the encounter with Christ. When we see what Christ has done for us, we lose our grasp on the things of this world. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with him in his death, a fellowship of his sufferings. We give over our lives to death. Listen, 
Thus it begins. I love this. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us, listen, at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cross is the beginning of intimacy. The cross is the beginning of love. The cross is the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. It's not the end. It is the everyday dying to self, taking up our cross and coming after him. It is the beginning of greater intimacy. It's the beginning of greater Christ-likeness. Every day we must look forward to taking up our cross, denying ourselves, making the choice to die to ourselves and follow after Christ and his example. Who, though he was in the very nature of God, did not count a call to God a thing to be grasped. We must, by the power of the Spirit, choose to not grasp the things in our life that we so cling to. Which leads us to step three. Step three is my love. My love. You see, it's not love until there's action. This is the first action step. So we've, we've identified it. We've prayed, but now we actually move. It's not love until you move. Until there's an action and you know that action is going to cost you. And we'll talk about that in a second. Right? This is the binding of yourself to the other person's suffering. Right? In, in, in uh, Philippians 2, Paul says, He took the form of a slave. Jesus bound himself to your suffering. Taking the form of a slave. It's the moment the love actually cost us. The moment you say, I don't care about my right the moment you take up the phone and you make that hard phone call, or you walk across the room, you engage in the difficult conversation out of love, this is the moment you bind yourself to it. There's no going back now. You are now like Christ. You're a slave to it. You've fully entered into the suffering of someone else out of love. It's the moment you act, the moment you sit down with the person in tears. The moment you step in between the two coworkers, the moment you knock on the door of your neighbor's house who can't afford their rent, this is the moment you have bound yourself to them. This is the moment of love. This is the moment of taking up your cross. But as Bonhoeffer said, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. This is the beginning of the J train. Up until this point, you have not gone down. You have seen suffering. You've identified it. You have seen that you are clinging to something that's not allowing you to engage in it. You've prayed that the Spirit would take that away and help you release your grasp and help you make that move. But until you make that move, you've not entered into a fellowship of the sufferings. You've not even begun the process. This is the moment where it begins. You begin to actually engage in love. Which leads us to the last step. Step four is my cost. My cost. I asked the question earlier, when was the last time the gospel has cost you something? This is when it begins to cost us. It has not cost you anything yet. It hasn't cost you anything yet. But this is the moment that it begins to cost us. This is the moment of suffering. And cost is really the key to this. 
It's not really love. It's not really a, a suffering love without cost. There must be some sort of cost. And I'm not talking about financial cost. It could be financial. But it could just be, I'm releasing my grasp on control. I'm releasing my grasp on my peace. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm releasing my grasp on this awkward moment that I don't want to engage in. It's costing me something. It's costing me time. I don't know if you've uh, followed this at all. In the news recently, uh, Keanu Reeves, uh, right, the new Matrix movie that came out at the end of last year. Uh, Keanu Reeves uh, flew his entire, like all of his, all the people who had helped him along the way, like get to the place where he's at. All the cast, all the crew, everybody. He flies them to San Francisco, puts them up in this amazing hotel, buys them an amazing dinner, pays their ticket to the, to the premiere of the movie. And then he takes them all out to breakfast the next day. It's like, he, and it's all over the news. Keanu Reeves, look how kind he is, look how nice he is, look how loving he is. But here's the reality. didn't cost him anything. They say, it costs a lot of money to do that. Keanu Reeves has like half a billion dollars in the bank. He's fine. Okay? He didn't feel it. He was kind. It was an act of kindness. But in no way was he suffering. In no way. Only when we, it actually cost us. When we actually begin to suffer, can we identify with Christ? Simple kindness is not a J-curve. It's not a fellowship of sufferings. Cost is the moment you sit down with a person in tears and you realize that there's a lot more here. It's going to take a lot more than just a minute of prayer or buying them a cup of coffee, telling them that you hope they have a better day. Instead, you get their number and you begin to engage in their life regularly, helping them through this difficult situation in their life. It's going to take some serious time and some serious effort to actually love them. It's the moment you step between the two coworkers and you realize this is more than a five-minute conversation. You're going to take them out to lunch and you're going to wade into past sorrows and past pains that have led them to this moment. And it's going to take weeks of engaging in this conversation actually love them well. It's the moment you knock on the neighbor's door of the house and you hand them the check that you so desperately wanted to keep for yourself. But then you know that there's more than money that they need. You help them to develop a plan to get back on their feet. You begin to meet with them regularly. You, you invite them over to dinner at your house because you know food is expensive. They begin doing meals with your family. Spending time and effort and energy on them. This is where the journey begins. Love has a cost. But for Christ to love you, it was not too much for him. The cost for him was death on a cross. The cost for you is nowhere near that. And every day we get the opportunity to die to ourselves, to engage in the death of Christ in order to love those around us. This is this beautiful, wonderful call of Christ. And, and it's not the bottom. Or it is, sorry, it is the bottom. It's not the end. It's the bottom of the J-curve. This moment where we're dying to ourselves, identifying with Christ. But it's not the end of the J-curve. Because the Spirit in this moment does a work in us that He is not going to do in any other time, in any other way. When we have found complete humility and complete weakness, and we've released our grasp on the things of this world by His power, He says, okay, now let's go to work. This is where we begin to experience the power of the resurrection in our life. Christ turns this humility and he turns this loving act for our glory, for our good, for his glory and our good. 
the J-curve as a dying and rising with Christ. It's only at the point of death when Christ, with Christ, that the Spirit goes to work. You have been freed from your rights to the things of this world. You've released your grasp on them. You grasp them less than you did before, and you grasp Jesus more. Your life is better than it was before because you entered into a fellowship of suffering with Christ. Your children see this, and they long to have what you have without even realizing it. They long to have the same relationship with Jesus that you have. Your spouse and your friends see this, and they long to have what you have. And without even realizing it, they're longing for Jesus. The people who you've bound yourself to, they also see this. And as their suffering is relieved by your love, they too long for what you have, and they long for Jesus. This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. You could not have made the choice. You could not have released your grasp on those things. This is not something you naturally did out of your own self-will and your own determination. God has moved in your life to help you engage in the love of someone else. And in doing so, he is raising you up to a new and greater life on the other side. This is the J-curve of love, where you are becoming more like Jesus in the process. And so here's what I want to ask you to do this week. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you, we gave you all sticky notes, right? And as we were talking about affliction and suffering that's coming at you, I said, what we need to do is just learn to identify it, to begin to write down all the times we're experiencing suffering, and then ask the question, what am I actually losing? And turning to Christ and saying, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Here's what I want you to try this week, okay? I want you to try to identify every time Someone around you, or you hear of someone who is suffering. Someone else, not you. You're looking for suffering in your life, in the lives of other people. Every time you see it, every time you hear of it, it could be something small, it could be something great. Just write it down. And then ask the question, what's the cost of entering into that? Like, what's the thing that I'm clinging to that I'm going to have to release in order to engage in that? It might be financial. It might be my peace. It might be my comfort. It might be whatever it is. It might be my time. What's the thing that I'm clinging to? Like, no, 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 like, I'm not, nope, not touching that with a 10-foot pole. What is that? What is the suffering and what is the cost? And then just ask the Spirit, Spirit, would you move in me? Because I'm not going to do this on my own. And see what happens. See what happens. Let's be a people who answer the call of Christ to love our neighbor as ourselves. But let us be a people who don't just stop there. Let's be people who embody Christ and come out on the other side more like him and experience the flourishing that he has on offer for us. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we come before you this morning and I, we just acknowledge in this place that we do not have the ability we do not have the power. We do not have the might. We will not on our own, by our own choice, we will not bind ourselves to someone else's suffering. Help us to humble ourselves this morning. Help us to acknowledge our brokenness. Open our eyes to the suffering of others. 
Help us to see those around us who you are doing a work in, and they don't even know it yet. The one that you're calling us to. Right now, I just pray for the people in this room. I pray for the men and women who have come this morning. I pray that you would um, lay someone on their heart right now. A friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member. Who is in, is in the middle of suffering. A person right now in their life who is experiencing loss. Who is experiencing sorrow. Would you help us to see what it is that we're clinging to that says, man, I don't want to engage in that because I would have to give up this. Would you show us? show us. And Spirit, would you help us to release our grasp on the things of this world. That we would be more like Christ and we cling to him all the more. That we'd see him the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself for us. Took the form of humanity and became a slave for us. Humbled himself, becoming obedient to death and even death on the cross. Would you help us to be more like Jesus? We cannot do this without you. Lead us and guide us. Show us the way. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen, friends. Let's go ahead and stand. Let's sing one last song together. Let's remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us so that we can do the same for others. Let's sing.